Elvis, 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 Hello and welcome to Elvis Has Left the Movies, a podcast dedicated to the cinematic legacy of Mr. Elvis Aaron Presley. We're going to be exploring, journeying through all 31 of his feature films, talking about the man, the music, the costumes, and whatever the hell else we want to talk about. And I'm Matt, and once again, I'm joined by Morgan. My name's Morgan, and today we are talking about Flaming Star and... uh Normally, we like to try and get the directors and the actors and give you the tidbits and everything like that. Save that for me for later. I want you to take over and do the thing. Yeah. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to read you my notes as I took them down while watching the movie. And a bit of a preface here. Elvis movies are like a comfort food to me. They're kind of my soft place to go to when the world is crumbling because... You know, when there's people out in the world acting like crazy animals, I can at least go to the ironclad rule of Elvis movies. So I did that on a day I was feeling particularly blue, and I watched Flaming Star, not knowing what it was going to be about, just to find out it was about killing the Indians. (laughs) And for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm an indigenous person. I am an Anishinaabe Ojibwe Kwe from Manitoulin Island, from uh, Wigwaskinagog, which is Birch Island. And I did not like watching a movie where people shot up the Indians. And it was really tough to watch. (laughs) So let's just get into it. Mm -hmm. I'll read you the notes. Flaming Star. Opening theme song is a cover song. More cowboys. Elvis nearly kills the family with a gun because he wasn't... There's a lot of, like, bad gun safety in these old movies that you'll see where they just, you know... For sure. Uh, wooden chair gag. So, again, we're pulling in some reference. There was a wooden chair bit in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then, God damn it, it's the Indians. God damn it, Italian Indians. The Indians speak broken English. Elvis is half Indian. Mom is Indian. Somebody says Injun Squaw. Somebody says they're worse than the Indians. More fighting. White people harass Elvis's Italian mother. <laughs> I'm calling her Italian, but she might not be Italian, but she looks... She's not Italian. I, I, she looks very Italian, but she's not. Um, actually, you better tell me before I rip into her too hard. What's her background? Both her and the other main uh, buffalo horn. Um, he's Puerto Rican and she is latin american yeah wow so what you're telling me is they're not fucking indian no of course not wow what a goddamn surprise (laughs) of course not yeah so um they're worse than the indians white people hate elvis's latin american mother uh the indians want elvis to ride with them because he's part indian he's got to pick a side yeah yeah pacer burton is elvis's name Mm -hmm. elvis says they ain't my people and somebody says it must be harder for you half white half indians Then the Indians say, because they're so stupid and backwards, why men on bottom of earth not fall off? Then they have a fucking pipe ceremony. There's no singing in this movie, by the way. There's no... Elvis does not sing his fucking way out of this one. There's two songs, and one of them is the title song that he's not even singing. So yes, we can just get that out of the way right off the bat. Elvis's acting is not bad at all, to be honest. Elvis isn't like the other Indians. He's a civilized human being is what somebody else said. Elvis decides to ride with the Indians. 
Elvis's dad bought his mom for a gun and a bunch of gunpowder. Oh, that's right. Oh. Yeah. Elvis gets a Nishnab monologue about uh, whatever, like the land and the people, and but not really. Yeah. Poor white people are being victimized by the Indians and they're blaming Elvis. The big bad Indian killed Elvis's dad. Elvis's brother kills the chief. Elvis puts on the fucking war paint. God damn it is the exact wording that I used in this note. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elvis kills all the Indians and saves Texas. The Indians get Elvis. Maybe someday people will understand people like us is what Elvis says. And then he rides off into the hill to die. Yes. That's Flaming Star. And listen, I'm going to be a little more outraged, obviously. You have every right to be. Yeah, because it's hard to see. um, It's one thing when you're part of a cultural identity and there's a shared understanding about where your place is in society and about whether or not that's right or wrong and what kind of struggles you should be making and you know, moving together as a group to kind of come together and and all that sort of stuff. And then it's very different when you're part of a cultural society that you see, you see the images and you see the actual on-screen rhetoric that people really, really thought and believed in. And this is a movie that is not made for Indigenous people. It's made for white people. So it's made in a way that is trying to tell white people to not feel bad about building all of their houses and homes all over Indian land because the Indian is just so dumb and stupid and violent that it's what's best for all of society that they don't have this land because they wouldn't know what to do with themselves if they did and blah 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 and it's just super sad and depressing you know yes And like, you know, I get that, you know, we're watching Elvis movies. So, you know, there's going to, I'm sure like if we get a certain amount of people on this podcast, there's still going to be one guy who hasn't listened to anything else from us, but is going to jump into the chat on this fucking episode and be like, well, blah, 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 not all white people, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. I get that there was a different like time. I get that we're watching Elvis movies and we shouldn't be as outraged maybe, but also, It's important to understand that movies like this played a big role in allowing white people to commit wholeheartedly to their assumptions about indigenous culture and identities, which they got from these movies. And that trickled down until today. There are still people who, when they meet me for the first time and I tell them I'm Ojibwe or I'm Anishinaabe Ojibwe or indigenous, they sit there and they look at me and they say, oh my God, so you're like an Indian? (laughs) You know, and again, like, talking about some cultural sensitivity here the older generation of indigenous people on reservations do sometimes still refer to themselves as indians and that's another whole cultural thing that i'm not going to get into because if indigenous people want to call themselves if our elders want to call themselves indians i'm not the person to correct them and neither are you person in the comment section so you know zip it but i personally have had people ignorant willfully ignorant of the way that 
we treat people in society, indigenous people in society, and how that is directly affected by these kinds of movies and just how much of a role these movies played in suppressing indigenous identities, confusing the mass society in what our culture and belief system was, and also these movies served a really great purpose in completely obliterating indigenous identities from media because nobody in this fucking movie that's a main player in this movie is fucking indian no one they're latin american or they're south american or whatever or they're fucking italian or they're portuguese or whatever they're not fucking natives they're not indigenous people and so when people watch this movie about indians they're not seeing any actual fucking indians not only in the way they're written in the way they're talked about but they're also not even literally in these movies and then you meet people 60 years after the fact who will find me at a Walmart and say, you're not an Indian. I had somebody once try to argue with me <laughs> that I had to call myself an Indian. A white person was like, no, you're an Indian. I'm like, oh, God. And these movies played a role in that current social dynamic. So I know we're not supposed to be mad because it's Elvis, but I can still be mad because <laughs> it's outrageous. Mm -hmm. It's outrageous. Did you also see in my notes by chance that he was actually inducted into the Los Angeles Indian Tribal Council by Chief Waniota for his constructive portrayal of a man of Indian blood? Yeah, I saw those pictures that you sent to me and I had some fucking questions about it because I don't actually know about this uh, specific chief, but... Um, there are chiefs who are well-known and well-respected and who the members of their community uphold as their chief. And then there are chiefs who are elected by the government that are put into a position of power and authority by government programs like INAC that we have here in Canada, the Indigenous National Affairs Committee. Um, I can't remember if that's what it's actually called, but the point is it's a, it's a government system that's set up. And so you remember seeing all that stuff about Wet'suwet'en a couple of, uh, like a year, two years ago, about them building the pipeline through BC and that. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly a, a very similar thing as to what I think is probably going on in those pictures that you sent me. Sometimes there will be a chief that's been elected through a legal system like INAC. And then there will be a chief that is elected through an honorary system of the original indigenous community, which is not legally often recognized by INAC, but which is still, for all intents and purposes, legal, especially when you're talking about uh, Wet'suwet'en, which is unceded territory. It's not a reservation yeah. like we have here in Ontario. It's un it's, it doesn't belong. Canada didn't give this piece of land back to these indigenous peoples. They've had it in their control for time immemorial. And what happened there was the honorary uh, chiefs of the community said no to this pipeline deal. And I think my understanding might be off a little bit, but basically there was a legal representative through INAC that gave them the okay to put this pipeline through. And that's where the big kerfuffle ended up happening because somebody outside of the honorary system of the reservation allowed for the production of this pipeline. And what I think happened with those friggin' Elvis pictures that you showed me is probably there was some, because I've seen these pictures and I, I hate to do this sometimes because I look white as sin, but in some of these pictures, these guys don't have their braids. And, you know, 
I just wonder if this wasn't something to do with some government body that was like, we're going to have this chief elected and legally representing these people, but he's going to be our chief so that we can elect people and give thanks to the type of people that we want, like maybe Elvis. Mm -hmm. I have a very hard time believing that any respectable chief would have watched this movie and would have seen no indigenous people in it. And also, I did not like the representation of the chief who was like presented as this warmongering ignorant kind of guy yeah. which is not at all what chiefs were like and i have no doubt in my mind that th there's no respectable chief that would have given elvis any kind of honorarium or any kind of induction and also yes elvis is indigenous i believe though he is 136th indigenous so he's he's pretty far removed yes not to say that that discredits him i don't know if they ever officially confirmed that genealogy either but that's what the family believed anyways yes and i want to make it perfectly clear that i'm not the kind of person that will try to discredit anybody based on a blood quantum if you are from an indigenous background and you don't have a status card getting yourself represented is very difficult and is a kind of bigger social issue than we're going to be able to unpack in an Elvis podcast. But suffice it to say, Elvis was not the right person to play this role. Uh, nobody was the right person to play the role in this movie, except for the ignorant, dumbass white people. <laughs> Those were the only people who did a good job in portraying their dumbass, stupid characters. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was so bad. So let's get into the gist of the movie, actually. Sure. The, the gist of the movie, actually, is that there is this roving band of Indians headed by this chief. The Kiowa. The Kiowa. And they are attacking villagers white settlers who are on their fucking land and they're killing them and they're mad because elvis who is half native won't ride with the white people to go and kill the indians and won't ride with the indians to go and kill the white people mm -hmm. and so elvis is kind of trying to stay on the fence about it and i'm just going to go on some tangents again sure no go ahead i want to also point out um the way that they treat the mother character here so the mother character is like really happy to have her husband and her children and have a home and all these things. But I want to point out again that his father bought her with a gun and gunpowder and bought her when she was very young. Like he says, I think she was like 14 or so. like she was really young. And I want people to understand the rhetoric here that they're saying that they're not really saying that she would have been like forced into servitude by this guy. And while she may look happy in this movie, like she appears to be everything's fine. It's okay that I was taken away from my village and forced into this servitude and indentured by this guy and blah, 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 blah. I want to also point out that she does not keep her braids. She is not allowed to practice any of her cultural history and background. And I guarantee you, if she was, they would have killed her or they would have, you know, sloughed her off back into the hills or whatever. But it's only because she has assimilated into white culture that she's even allowed to be made fun of by white people in a respectable kind of way. You know, like... 
I just want to point that out that that they treat like that that would have been a big proponent right that was a big thing was showing the assimilated Indian and how well they adapted to normal quote-unquote normal society when in reality like those people are cut off from their family she's not allowed to visit her family she can't go and hang out with them she can't go and practice her teachings or her culture she's not allowed to be an Indian so I just want to point out that they romanticize that a lot they're like oh she's so happy and everything's great it's like yeah okay sure they portray her as like naively optimistic too She's like saintly. I can, they, yeah. they they perceive her as saintly. I'm gonna solve this whole problem with diplomacy, and it's fine. There's like it's, and then of course you know she gets killed. Yeah, and it's you know. Oh, it's just so dumb. Yeah, it's just so stupid. So let's talk about these stupid actors and these stupid directors that thought this stupid movie was a good idea. <laughs> this is the biggest bummer of all: is that the talent that they recruited for this movie, like the. the it's really good. Yeah. But for for what? For this is what we got. I know. And I want to extend some sympathies to the actors because while they were a part of this system and while they may have sometimes really been a part of the problem, a lot of these actors, especially I know that Portuguese people, there was a lot of Portuguese people acting as indigenous people in these films at this time. And that was because Portuguese people didn't have any fucking money. Okay, there was no money. They were a lot of Portuguese people were from abroad, you know, fresh off the boat, didn't have any cash. And one of the ways that you could make money was by playing Indians. And it's not necessarily their fault that they're badly portraying Indians because they're also a branch of society that's being on the beating end of the stick of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't have any rights. If they don't act like the Indian they want them to act like, then they get fired and then their kids go hungry. So I want to extend some sympathies to actors that are caught in this. Not to all of them because some actors are fucking stupid. <laughs> and you can tell are just like, uh, just believe in this shit, you know? Sure. So anyway, good actors, bad movie. Let's hear them. Okay. Well, I'm going to talk about the director too and the, the, okay. the whole kit and caboodle. Um, so the director of this piece is Don Siegel. He is probably best known for his collaborations with Clint Eastwood in the 70s. He directed the first Dirty Harry. He directed him in Escape from Alcatraz. He directed him in Coogan's Bluff. Like, these are all big hits, and, like, they had a really fruitful collaboration. But at the time we find him here in 1960 with Flaming Star, he had directed uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956, the original. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and then this was an interesting thing that I found in the research, because this is... A 20th Century Fox picture. So last uh, time we were doing another Paramount, but now we're back with 20th Century Fox. This is their second one after Love Me Tender. Obviously, they had a real hard-on for Elvis in a Western. Which is weird. Like, Elvis yeah. does not look good as a cowboy. For all the reasons we, we mentioned last time and, and this time too, yeah. Yeah. Elvis has, like, a baby face. He doesn't look good as a cowboy. He comes off better here, but just because like, he's a better actor, but that's that doesn't help the content. You know why he looks better in this movie? Because they don't show his face as much. Sure. That's what I think. Yeah. So with Love Me Tender, that was a big hit, and they launched Elvis's acting career. And it turns out that Fox did this two more times because Don Siegel's film that he did right before Flaming Star was a 1959 movie called Hound Dog Man. Hmm. That's not like a reference to Elvis with the Hound Dog. It's actually the name of the book that it was based off of. Okay. Which was written by Fred Gibson, who wrote Old Yeller. Oh. So they took, there was this pop singer, this teeny bopper pop singer named Fabian. He was so cool. He went by one name like Cher. 
uh, Fabian. <laughs> and they made a star vehicle, Hound Dog Man, 1959. And it was a big hit and it launched his acting career. And the year after Love Me Tender, they did the same thing with Pat Boone, who was another big pop singer of the day. Yep. And they made a movie called Bernardine. And he sang and, and was acting in it. And then that launched his career. So they did it three times to three great successes. Yeah. With three different like pop singers. I didn't, this is crazy. That's weird. Yeah. That's just a thing that came up and I was, I was found that fascinating. That's really interesting. Sounds like Elvis wasn't the only person getting a piece of the pie. Yes. At least with 20th Century Fox. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Don Siegel, he's made plenty of other much better movies that you can watch instead <laughs> of Flaming Star. Yes, yeah. The cinematographer, Charles G. Clark, he served twice as president of the American Society of Cinematographers. Ooh. So he was a pretty big deal. He made his debut in The Son of Tarzan in 1920. So like by the time we get to 1960, he's like a veteran. Right. He's been doing this for a long time. He also was the cinematographer on 1947's Miracle on 34th Street. Yeah. Beloved perennial classic. And then we'll just do the writers. So this was based off a novel called Flaming Lance from 1958. Okay. Which I will also help. This will dovetail me into also talking about the alternate titles. Okay. We'll get that out of the way. Because it was originally going to be called Flaming Lance because that's the name of the book. And then at one point it was going to be Flaming Heart. And at one point it was going to be Black Star. And then it was going to be Black Heart. And then it ended up being Flaming Star. So they went through a bunch of different combinations until they apparently thought, oh, yes, this is the one. This will work. Huh. And in case you're wondering out there, because you're probably not going to want to watch this movie. We're really putting it down and for, with good reason. Um <laughs> The, the context, of, they try to weave this into the plot where the mother character and even Elvis himself near the end, they talk about the flaming star of death. You know, this is some kind of... Yeah, out in the distance, this apparition sure. that people see that when they see it, they're like, okay, I know I'm going to die, so I'm going to go off to die now. Right. And they go run into the hills to go die. <sighs> and I, I get the sense that this was supposed to be like some kind of spiritualistic... Mm-hmm. For sure. You know, thing that they wanted the indigenous people to have, but it, in the end it kind of falls flat because the movie falls flat because they just are, I just hate this so much. <laughs> it's okay. L- luckily, this yeah. movie flopped. We're going to get it. We're going to talk about that real quick. Good. I'm glad. Well, here's the thing. And I'm going to say they probably shot themselves in the foot because they released this less than a month after GI Blues came out. Wow. GI Blues comes out in November. They put this out in December. I don't know what they were thinking. Yeah. They were thinking more Elvis is good. But no, obviously, G.I. Blues is already a hit and everyone's just going to go see G.I. Blues again. They're not going to go see Flaming Star. Yeah. So. That's crazy. But in a way, it worked out because we don't have to worry about movies like this for a while. There's going to be one. <laughs> ever again. Yeah. Well, I'm not. So unfortunately, not ever again. There is one more film way down the line when we're almost at the end of this. When we, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel of this journey. Is that Charo? No. It's before that. And. I'm not going to get into it, but it, at least it's not a, it's not a Western. Okay. But unfortunately, it is about indigenous people. Oh, no. And there's maybe some even bigger egregious examples of, oh, of no. casting. <laughs> but you'll be, you'll be prepared. You won't be caught off guard next time. Yes, yeah. I'm going to warn you well in advance. But that's like really at the tail end of this. So we got a bunch of just random rom-coms. Yeah. So yeah, just finishing off of these writers. Yep. I don't know about this book or like how the book does it, but I don't know. Anyways, Claire Huffaker, what a name. Yeah, Claire Huffaker wrote the novel. He gets credited as like a co-writer, but he technically he just wrote the novel. Like he didn't actually help adapt. That was all another crazy name, Nunnally Johnson. Hmm. Um, he wrote the screenplay for this and he was Oscar nominated in 1940 for writing the screenplay for The Grapes of Wrath. 
Ah. Watch that. Don't watch this. Watch all these other movies. Don't watch this. Yeah, watch yeah. The Grapes of Wrath. So that's it with those people. Although, yeah, I do want to point out there is a very small segment in Grapes of Wrath where they talk about killing the Indians too. I, it was really hard to avoid it in all these pictures. Yeah, I don't know if it was in the movie, but it was in the book. So mm. little little tie in there for you. But it's not in the same kind of egregious way because it's written from a different perspective. Like this movie is written for the perspective of the general white audience but grapes of wrath was written from the perspective of a certain very specific group of people during a very specific event and part of that event was them discussing the the past of their lives and part of their past was killing indians so i don't like that but it's not the same no, as yes. this this is this is somebody taking a group of people that they are not and uh, and appropriating their image to suit their needs and satisfactions and their conceptions about a, a group of people so it's a completely different animal yes but i would recommend reading grapes of wrath too oh yeah uh, and i actually um just to go on a little tangent sure. about Grapes of Wrath, because why not? Yeah. Um, I would recommend anybody who's starting to feel the pressures of modern day like capitalism and its effect on our society. And if you want to read something very interesting about that effect as it happened, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60. I, when was Grapes of I think Grapes of Wrath was the 1930s. Yeah, the movie came out in 40s, so it must have been a 30s book. Yeah, 1930s was when the Grapes of Wrath came out, and it talked about an actual event that happened during the Great Depression where many, many people died of starvation and, and all this stuff. And it talks a lot about how different aspects of capitalism fueled that decay of modern society and, and how that all tumbled into one big bad event and so if you want to read some things and uh, give yourself a fresh perspective on the way things are going nowadays uh, the grapes of wrath is definitely the book to check out yes even with its killing indians bit and that's john steinbeck of course great american yeah john author. steinbeck yeah I mean, amazing i reread it recently i i read it once and then i had to read it again because i was just like wow i was just captivated and i can tie this into another bit of stuff in the news did you hear that they Back in early in his career, apparently he tried to publish a werewolf mystery novel under a pen name. No. And the full manuscript exists. It's in uh, like an archive in Austin. And now people are like demanding wow. that they release this because they want to read the John Steinbeck werewolf like crime thriller. Holy shit. That's amazing. Yeah. It was going to be called like uh, something murder under the moon or something. Like it <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. So delightful. So... Okay, so we did the writers. Did we do all of the writers? That was them. Yeah, there's the one who wrote the book and the one who actually wrote the screenplay. And then we talked about the titles. Okay, let's talk about the actors. Well, we'll also talk about, we mentioned, there's only two songs. So we can get those out of the way real quick. Yep. Flaming Star, which is the song, it's just over the opening credits. Elvis isn't actually on screen singing it. And the one he is on screen singing before, you know, the plot gets forward and everything really just goes to hell. The whole family's together having a good old time and they sing... Uh, a cane and a high starch collar. Right. Um, apparently, uh, there was initially four songs in this movie. I'm glad they cut them. Presley insisted on because it because he wanted less songs. He wanted to be more of a serious actor, of course. Yeah. So there was a song called Britches, 
which is apparently there was one song that they might have filmed them but like there was one where he was going to be singing on horseback and he's just like no this looks dumb like who am i roy rogers <laughs> so there was britches and then there was gonna be oh, this one you would have hated there was gonna be a song while they were around the campfire yeah called summer kisses winter tears where all like the tribe was gonna you know sing with him and they were gonna be the backup on the drums and it was just oh boy oh, it sounded like the worst so luckily that didn't happen i'm glad even though the rest of the movie still did. Yeah. Uh, so we're done. And is there a good song in this? No. No. No, there isn't. <laughs> They're both bad songs. Yeah. Uh, the best song in this movie is when the ending credits roll. There you go. That's the best song. It's the 20th Century Fox fanfare. Just the dun 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 because you're like, oh, that's fun. And then everything else is just, nope. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about these actors. Okay. We do tell have me, tell me about people in here. Tell me about... Tell me about the Portuguese chief. <laughs> uh, Puerto Rican. I want to hear about the Puerto Rican chief. Sure. Well, let me do this in order just for the sake of... Okay. Or no, I, you know what? I'm going to start with them, even though... Just because, you know what? Yeah. Um. So the mother is Dolores Del Rio. Fantastic actress. And she's been in a bunch of stuff. She was actually... Okay, so she was in a movie from 1932 called Bird of Paradise. That was a big hit. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I know that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And then she was in... This is noteworthy. 1933's Flying Down to Rio, which was noteworthy because it's the first pairing of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Oh, that's interesting. We would have gone on to make many movies together. And in that movie, Dolores Del Rio actually became the first major actress to wear a two-piece woman's bathing suit on screen. Oh, interesting. And overall, she's regarded as the first major female Latin American crossover star in Hollywood. Wow. So it's she's, a shame she know. got mixed up in this film. I know. It's un- unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it's a real shame. She's great. She deserved better than this. So did... She did. Uh, Every, everyone in this movie deserved better than this. Yes. Even Elvis deserved better. Yeah, because like I said, he's giving another really good committed performance and the material is just not worth it. Yeah. And it's a shame that he wasn't able to do more movies like not like this, but with that acting to it instead of the fluffy yeah. GI blues, which is what we're going to get from now on pretty much. Yeah. Um, Rodolfo Acosta, or he was usually credited as Rudolph because... Why bother with his real name? Yeah. Um, but Rodolfo Acosta played Buffalo Horn. Oof. Yes. And he was in a bunch of John Wayne Westerns because that's the thing. I mean, that's why he was in Hondo with John Wayne in 1953. And then there is the other prominent character of Two Moons played by Perry Lopez, Puerto Rican. Um, he was he's probably best known he actually plays lieutenant lou escobar in chinatown 1974's chinatown with jack nicholson oh which that movie is problematic for its own reasons but yes anyways uh and those are those three are our prominent indigenous characters not played by indigenous people yeah According to IMDb, some of the background extras, like some of them in like the big group scenes were actually indigenous, but of course they didn't get any lines and they're just there. Yeah, I know that it was a contentious thing for indigenous people because you you always talk about this opinion, is bad representation better than no representation at all? Right. And um, we're not going to answer that today <laughs> because... Uh, it's a big topic going to yes yeah there's a lot and so of course you had indigenous people trying to get themselves inserted into film trying to get themselves in front of a camera into the public space into the public image and having to kind of play devil's advocate with the fact that representation in these movies was really bad and that they were getting taken advantage of and i don't know man it's just 
It's a long, dark, gross portion of our history that I think like everybody in the modern day really is just super happy to ignore. But like, I don't know, man. It just ain't right. I just wish I could explain that to people and have them not argue it with me. Like, I just need you to understand that most people, I would say to people who would think about uh, arguing against this fact, you'll never know what it's like to turn a movie on and see yourself being portrayed as ignorant, war-hungry, stupid, backwards. Like, you'll never have to turn on a movie and see yourself portrayed that way and see that the society that people lived in were a hundred percent on board with making you believe that's who you were like just no problem at all you'll never ever ever have to do that and um so don't at me <laughs> i know no. like you i know, like, can watch this movie and appreciate the filmmaking and and try to s- I, I'm, you know, get something, you put something together, you know, because it's a movie. It's still something that some person somewhere believed in and had a vision of, yes. and had a dream. But for. I'm also a white guy, and I understand that yeah. that's my that's a the place of privilege that I have that I could just be like, oh yeah, that's whatever. Right. This is the way it was, and it's that's right. And for me, that will always trickle down. You know, even when I have kids, one day they're gonna see movies like this because it's part of our history, and they're gonna have to learn the truth of how our societies treat indigenous people. And these, it's very important that people understand, I said it before, these opinions travel through generations. People in their childhood would have watched movies like these and not ever having met an indigenous person would have had to assume that that's what the indigenous person was. And then they would have met an indigenous person like me late in their life you know, in in their fifties and sixties, and been like, "What do you mean you're you're not gonna put the war paint on?" And blah blah blah. You don't look like an Indian. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. So that shit trickles down, man, and it'll trickle down forever and ever until everybody dies. The end. That's my story. Sure. <laughs> and I, let's talk about some of these white people that are in this movie. Yeah. So the closest we get to a sympathetic figure is the lady, Rosalind Pierce. Yeah. Who at one point, you know, at least when Elvis's mother is like dying, she's the one who actually goes to the house and is like, well, she's, you know, a human being. Maybe I should also yeah. help and try to take care of her. But, and she's the only one. Yeah. Nobody else in the village. The doctor says he was going to do it, but like they said they voted that he couldn't. And then they have to resort to threatening his daughter. There's like a whole thing. Anyways. Yeah. I want to point this out too. Sure. I just want to keep going on tangents. It's really important that people also understand that that was in fact a reality for people. For sure. Not just a long time ago, but even today there are still places in the world where people have to... Even if they want to help people, there are certain societies even nowadays where you can't help people unannounced without provocation, without facing serious backlash to not just yourself, but your family and your income and your job. Like there are still places today where you can't get an HIV test without your job and your school being allowed to know about it right like it's it's standard that your job and your school has to know if you're hiv positive or not and if you are you will be fired and you will be um you have you'll be forced to leave the country in some cases i've heard and 
if you are a doctor, you can't not do that because of the society you live in. Even if you want to help somebody, you can't stop them from being fired. You can't step in and you can't do anything because your hands are tied. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to understand that there was institutionalized bigotry and racism throughout all societies. It's still prevalent today that makes monsters out of people where they might otherwise just be really good upstanding people because a lot of the times they can't afford to help people without facing really severe backlash like if that doctor had gone and helped who knows what happened to his wife and daughter that's true when he left right how would they have reacted how would they have treated her god and then they say things in this fucking movie like they're worse than the indians you know, like, you didn't bring it up also, but on multiple occasions, there are characters that refer to Elvis as Red Boy. They call him Boy and Red Boy oh, a yeah. lot. Yeah. And it's just all kinds of bad. I was more upset to, to see in a movie somebody calling a woman a squaw. Right. I was really shocked. I by can't that believe. Because where where I'm from, you can't call somebody that. No. Nobody calls anyone that. I remember learning that in like elementary school. Like that is yeah, a, like, not a good word. That's a bad word. You don't call people that. And there are some cultural words that we have in our society that we give allowances to people when they're from that society. So of course, I'm talking about the N-word. Like, you know, not everybody agrees about who can say the N-word. And I think it's up to uh, black people to decide for themselves yes, who should and sure. should not use that, right? I don't think anybody else kind of gets to have their... I don't know. You can put your opinion out there, but it's a stupid opinion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) That's what I think. But squaw isn't like that. Nobody gets to say that. Nobody says that to anyone. No one has ever, ever called me that. I think one kid once called me that when I was little. But no one in my on my reservation goes around to another girl and calls another girl a squaw like that just doesn't happen because it's so insulting and it's insulting because it's this word that's been used by our settlers to push us around yes so we don't use it between ourselves and i was just really i couldn't believe that that you would do that on screen that you think it's okay to say that on screen (laughs) i just different times right like god how awful (laughs) it's just terrible really bad they made every wrong decision yes okay (laughs) they really did sad (laughs) who else are we talking about uh yeah we were talking about rosalind pierce so there's like the burns is elvis's family and the pierces are like the closest neighbor you know they're all very spread out yes but the pierces are like the main antagonists that are the ones they're the ones that are as as bloodlustful as far as like the white people in the movie are yeah but anyways, she's the the daughter of that family there. Uh, she's played by Barbara Eden, who there's nothing else I could talk about other than she's Jeannie and I Dream of Jeannie from 1965 to 1970. Oh, yeah. she looked very familiar. Yeah. I remember watching her and being like, hmm. Huge success. Yes, yeah. Which came after this, luckily. So it just yeah. sweep it all under the rug. No one cares about Flaming Star. God, yeah. And then uh, the brother. So yes, Elvis's half brother, who's yes. all white. Yeah. Make a point. And also, yes, yeah, so this time Elvis doesn't play Clint. There's a guy who plays Clint, the brother, in this. <laughs> Even though Elvis is still the baby brother, he cannot be like the older brother. Yeah. Uh, Steve Forrest plays Clint Burton. Uh, a lot of TV work. He also was the lead on a pretty successful TV show, the the show SWAT from 1975-76. Ah. And he actually has a cameo in the 2003 SWAT movie with Colin Farrell and, and Sam Jackson and all that that they made. Because it was technically an adaptation of 
the, the show. Right. So it was nice that they little gave him a little nod. And that was also his final credit. So a nice little uh, send off. Send off. And then two years after this movie, he's in the big ensemble war drama, The Longest Day. Hmm. That was a big production, big, big thing. Neat. Yep. And then the dad, Sam Paw Burton, Paw, is John McIntyre, who is one of those classic, like, yep, this guy's played like a bunch of dads or, or like characters <laughs> in Westerns. You, 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 you can't imagine him without a cowboy hat. And he has 143 credits. Wow. And he actually plays the sheriff, Al Chambers, in Psycho, which came out the same year as this. Then the shittiest of the Pierces, Dread Pierce. I mean, his name is freaking Dread. Mm-hmm. He's the one who's like the real antagonist. Yeah. Carl Svensson. 172 credits. This was like, what? He voiced Merlin in Disney's Sword in the Stone in 1963. Oh, weird. Uh, fun fact about me, I grew up with a bunch of the Disney movies on VHS, but I only had the French versions because I'm, you know, French Canadian. <laughs> So I actually, there's a lot of times where I would revisit Disney movies and I would watch the English versions for the first time and be like, oh, this is so weird hearing them, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. His voices are all different. Yeah. But yeah, so he was Merlin in Sword of the Stone. And then there is, right, the other, there's the three families. There's the Burns, the Pierces, and the ones who get wiped out at the beginning in a pretty violent sequence are uh, the Howards. Yeah. But one survives. And then spends like the rest of the movie until they, he finally finds Crawling people. through the desert. We keep cutting back to him. He's just still crawling. And I'm like, crawling my God, th- what the crawling hell? Crawling through the desert. Yeah. And then he arrives at his destination to shoot Elvis's mom in the boob. Immediately. Yeah. Just like, oh, yeah. there's some people on that. Anyways. Yeah. So <laughs> he, Douglas Dick this is the guy's name. <laughs> That's a shame. I'm mature. It's a fun name. Anyways, <laughs> Douglas Dick plays Will Howard. Um, he appeared in 1948's Rope, the Alfred Hitchcock movie Rope. Hmm. Not as one of the main dudes in Rope, just like as a secondary character. As a dick? Oh, okay. <laughs> Douglas Dick. Douglas Dick. Douglas Dick. Yes. <laughs> Douglas Diglas. Uh, and then I'm going to give a shout out to my side character. Big Dougie Dick. Is... <laughs> <laughs> We're going off the rails. Uh, Ford Rainey is the actor who played Doc Phillips. Ooh. And watch this. He played the Marshal of Bismi, Arizona in 310 to Yuma, 1957. Oh. So we actually have a 310 to Yuma alumni show up in a... That's pretty cool. In an Elvis movie. I love 310 to Yuma. It's great. Once again, yeah. we, might, we cannot recommend See, enough. I'm just saying, like, you can make Western movies without shooting up the Indians. I know. I'm looking at you, Buster Scruggs. Like, come on. Mm, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, except for the one chapter where they shoot up the Indians. Uh, don't shoot up the Indians. Uh, we get it. We get it that you shot the Indians. We get it that it was a great fucking time you guys all had going around shooting up the fucking Indians. Wow, so much fun. I don't want to see it anymore. <laughs> like, I'd like to be able to sit down and enjoy cowboys like the rest of society sure. without having the fact that y'all shot up the Indians, just shoved down my throat every fucking time you want to talk about cowboys. What about High Noon? What about 310 Yuma? What about freaking No Country for Old Men? That's not technically a Western, but I A neo-Western. It, it counts. It, it's yeah. A, yeah. So, there's no Indians in there. There's no... You don't shoot up no Indians. There are Mexicans, though. What... 
Well, yeah, but, you know, apparently there's fucking Mexicans in this movie, too. <laughs> <So> <laughs> That's a good, Puerto, it's true. Puerto Ricans. I'm well, sorry, no, there's folks. two Mexican actors, both Dolores Del Rio oh. and uh, well, there you go. Rodolfo Alcas are Mexican. And then Perry Lopez is Puerto Rican, but yes. Yeah, there you go. Okay, I'm just saying. Also, uh, True Grit didn't shoot any Indians. Uh, no, I don't. Th- I think that one's safe. But mostly just stay away from John Wayne if you don't want to see this content. Yeah, stay away from John Wayne. And if you want to see this content, well, just watch all of John Wayne's movies. Because yeah, if you want to see this content, go jump off a bridge because <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You have a right to consume all media, even That's the bad true. one. Just know that it isn't right. Yes. Isn't like there's true. the context. Like when just people understand. Yeah. air gone with the wind these days, they have to, you know, we have to understand yeah. the whole cultural thing about that. And it's this we is. Ha- you've got, even though it's a really a great, amazing movie, you still have to take the way they treat characters in that movie especially of course we're talking about the black characters mm-hmm. with like heaps and heaps of salt yes because it you just cannot trust hollywood e- even now but especially back then you cannot trust or rely on their depictions of bipoc people at all uh and we guess we haven't talked about how this movie was actually really well received critically bummer <laughs> It's too bad. It's like the third highest rated Elvis movie, just from like a critical <gasps> standpoint. Oh, no. Even as much as it wasn't a box office success, the critics really were like appreciative of Elvis Presley's performance and his improvement as an actor, which for that I can agree with. But I can understand, but to say that this movie deserves any critical acclaim at all, it's just tainted. It's mm-hmm. just tainted with the stank of ignorance. <laughs> Yes. Quentin Tarantino loves that movie, oh. but of course he loves just like trash exploitation. Quentin exploitate. Tarantino loves Flaming Star. Yes. Well. He's on record as calling it uh, a truly great 50s Western. Uh, Quentin, it came out in 1960. Ooh. So like, gotcha. Um, and he says, Ooh. but it's also probably one of the most brutally violent American Westerns of its era. Probably. Yeah. It's not even that violent. It's really not even that. Compared to other things, though. I guess what they would have been showing, yeah. Um, well, we got some noteworthy facts. Let's go through those. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's. We're just we're dragging ourselves bit. across the finish <laughs> line. On I this know one. it's it's just painful. It's very draining. okay. Let's do it. Um, let's do it. We can do it. So here's a here's a crazy what if. Apparently, originally the two leads were going to be Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando. You know that would have made more sense because I heard Frank Sinatra was a real piece of shit. <laughs> I'm assuming he would have played the clint part and marlon brando would have been playing the half native oh the half God. indigenous Ooh, person so bad actually uh, uh let's let's do a tie-in though sure this is i finally i can be the one with the the filmography tie-in Ooh, okay go right ahead marlon brando who won an oscar right. refused to accept the oscar because of the incidences happening at wounded knee because, yes, this was the Oscar that Marlon Brando had won for The Godfather that he refused to accept. Yes. Yeah, he refused it on the basis of the Wounded Knee crisis. And I'll give some background because uh, I know most of you think Wounded Knee, that happened in like the 1800s. Not so, young traveler. So there was actually two major incidents that happened at Wounded Knee. The first incident was the mass execution, or I think they killed around four to 700 indigenous people which is it was a genocide they were taking them from their land and and moving them to a different area Mm -hmm. and this was something that used to happen where they would transport people in this manner so that they could 
pick off the sickly and have them be really tired and worn out and so they would start dying of starvation malnutrition lack of water and that sort of thing which was what happened at the trail of tears which was a different event but anyway so wounded knee there was this big massacre and um, it was real bad and then in the 70s I believe the 60s or the 70s, Wounded Knee suffered another civil crisis where it, it was a little complicated, so I'm, I might be getting this wrong, but the general gist of it was there was a nuclear plant that had set up on the reservation or close to it and was dumping nuclear waste on the reservation or close to it, and some social activists started putting two and two together but what happened was it caused a civil crisis because the police that were working for the reservation, so for those of you who know, some reservations have their own body of police and some have the state police. And oftentimes those two forces are at odds with how to deal with jurisdictional matters. <laughs> and there was some evidence that the police on both sides were being bribed to turn a blind eye towards this big company like killing indigenous people and, and murdering people. And one of the people they murdered, her name was Anna May Akash. She died in 1975. Uh, she was a Mi'kmaq tribal member of Nova Scotia. So yeah, she, she disappeared. She turned up missing. And um, there's a famous song, actually. There's a song written by... Oh, I um, can't remember a song either, but... A anyway, there was this big event. And so I'm not surprised to find out that uh, Marlon Brando was not in this movie because it seemed to be he had some cultural understanding about uh, which side to be on when it came to civil issues with Indigenous people. Correct. At least at that point. But... A man is uh, a many-faceted thing, and uh, unfortunately, Marlon Brando did wear yellow face in some of his early movies. I believe that. So, it's... Yeah, there's always something. He played a Japanese man more than once, I think. Yeah. Oh, God. So bad. But, yeah, I just wanted to tie that in. Yes. So, um, do we have any any other actors that we want to talk about? Uh, I was just going to look up real quick. So he, on his behalf, he sent... Um... Oh, yeah, that's right. He sent a representative, and the representative refused to accept the award, was what it was. Mary Louise Cruz, okay. uh, known as uh, Sachin Littlefeather, is an Apache actress and activist for Native American rights. She represented Marlon Brando at the 45th Academy Awards to decline the Best Actor Award for his performance in The Godfather. And... Um, I can't remember if I met her or not, but I remember seeing her in, in an interview where she talked about how um, after she uh, refused to accept the award, she got a slew of hate mail from people telling her that she wasn't indigenous, that it was all fake, that it was all just a ruse, oh, that of course. Um, that her regalia wasn't right and that she wasn't wearing the right sort of thing and all this stuff. Yeah, very interesting. The more things change, the more things stay the same. And it's very important that people understand... Um, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on the, the exact facts of what happened in the, the second Wounded Knee Civil Crisis in 19, 1973, but the, the gist of it is a large corporation was backed by the federal state, not just the local police, but by, I think, the FBI, 
and indigenous people were being picked off and killed and this was the other bit that I forgot to mention they were funding an arms race into the reservation so they were feeding both sides with guns to amp up the conflict to draw away from the fact that there was this real shady shit going on with this company right on the reservation and, and people died because of that uh really really interesting stuff but it's important to understand uh sorry what i meant to say was that this was not a very long time ago my mom was born in 1971 i believe when she was born so in her her life she has still seen the effects of this kind of institutionalized social structure that we see kind of dampening on to indigenous people. And that still happens today. What Sudan, uh, Standing Rock, like uh, those major political events of governments slowly chipping away at indigenous land, getting their hands on whatever piece of land they can get their hands on, is still happening to this very, very day. So you see movies like this, and then you see the way that society treats you as an indigenous person, how your government treats you as an indigenous person. And um, those things are still, those things are all connected. They're all rooted in one big ugly ball of a system that indigenous people are not allowed to be a part of, but instead have to play the role as a victim in. Yes. But anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. That's okay. <laughs> bit of a tangent. Because yeah, Frank's, any more actors? Yeah, I'll, no, I'll just we we're just finishing off the factoids because that was Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando were maybe going to be in the movie and then it didn't happen. Yes. Also, this movie. Oh yeah, I didn't mention this last time. Apparently, GI Blues was before Norman Turog directed it was offered to Michael Curtiz who directed King Creole. Oh. I could not see him handling that material. I mean, I, yeah. like, he would have made it better, I'm assuming, but also like. It's not much to work with. Yeah. Apparently, he was once again approached to direct this movie as well. I wonder if he turned them down. If he did, then good on him. Yeah. But I think probably it just not. Probably, probably just didn't work probably. out. And then they're like, well, we'll get <laughs> yeah. Don Siegel to do it instead. Yeah. For people who are in the know about art and Andy Warhol's career in general, Mm-hmm. A publicity still from this film was used on several silk screens that he put out. He had a thing called like double Elvis, triple Elvis, where he would just kind of like, you know, superimpose multiple copies of yes. that. And they sold for, you know, big money. That was part of his whole, you know, pop art movement and stuff. Yep. So. And that was from this movie. Yes. Of all the of all the films he chose, he did, it was a publicity That's still from. That's really interesting. Because there's Elvis like holding a gun, like, you know. Interesting. Yes. And that's pretty much... Oh, right. I have one last thing. Okay. Apparently, actor Robert Wagner wrote in his memoirs that he was offered the role of uh, half-brother Clint, but he turned it down. And then his a direct quote from his, his book, he says, because nobody ever paid attention to any other man in an Elvis Presley picture, Colonel Tom Parker made sure of that. Wow. He's not wrong. Yeah, he's not wrong. That's all I've got. I think we're done. I think we can call it. Call it an evening? All right, folks. This has been Morgan and Matt on a very depressing Elvis movie, as it turns out, full of depressing facts. <laughs> yes. Next time, we're going to be talking about Wild in the Country, which, uh, if anything, is not a Western. So at least we, got, we okay. it should be much better. That's good. Because Wild in the Country definitely sounds like a Western. So Yes. No, it's a contemporary piece. Ooh. I haven't watched it yet, so I don't know. But it's something about like he wants to get himself a house or something. I don't know. Oh, something like really 
back to basics. Yes. I'm just a sweet guy and I just want the normal things in life. But not as back to basics as Blue Hawaii, which is the one after that. True, true, true. So I was really hoping like I watched GI Blues and then I watched Blue Hawaii right afterwards. Yes. And I think that it would have made more sense if Blue Hawaii had came out right after GI Blues because Elvis returns home from the war in that movie. And I thought that would have been fun. Sure. There should have just been like, just like Picasso, there should have been a blue period for Elvis. And he was just yeah, making GI Blue really and have. Blue Hawaii. And there should have. That there was really only those two. Okay. Well, anyway, folks, I guess that's it for us today. Yes. Thank you for joining us on this incredibly, uh, what's this called? Uh, don't Elvis watch this movie. <laughs> yes. Don't watch it. Zero out of 10. Bad Elvis movie. Don't watch it. And uh, with that, we're going to say thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. much.